John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds ask him, What then should we do? In reply, he said, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. Whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? And he said, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his granary. With the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. As we go through the gospel according to St. Luke this liturgical year, I will point out to you times when Luke has something that the other gospel writers have and times when he has something unique to Luke. Today's scripture is a good reminder of why scholars call the first three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic. That is, they often look alike. In the first three verses of the passage we just read, there are 64 Greek words in the original text. Luke tells those three verses in 64 words. Matthew has the same story with 60 of the same words. It's obvious that one is copying the other, probably Luke copying Matthew. He says in the very beginning of his gospel, I am aware of other accounts that have been written. I'm going to set the record straight for you, O Theophilus. So, 64 words in Luke, 60 of those same words in Matthew, and then suddenly Luke gives us five verses contained nowhere else in the Holy Scriptures. Luke gives us more of the preaching of John the baptizer than any other writer. Let's take a look at what he says. The first thing, the word of the Lord came to John in the desert, and the people came to John in the desert. We pick up where we left off last Sunday. They had to leave their warm homes, their towns, even the big city of Jerusalem, come down that winding road into the desert, where John was preaching alongside the banks of the Jordan River, just where it empties into the Dead Sea. And they were filled with great expectation, Luke says, great expectation. They expected something to happen. Dr. Alice McKenzie has an endowed chair in homiletics preaching at our Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University. 
about this season. She has recently written that she and a friend decided this fall they needed more exercise and that maybe if they would exercise together, they would be more faithful about doing it. Well, they set out to walk together. When they compared calendars, the best time they could come up with, open to both, 6 a.m. Alice said, I'm not usually out of my house before 6 a.m., so that first night I woke up, looked at my clock, 3.17. I went back to sleep. I woke up, looked at the clock, 4.23. I went back to sleep. I woke up, 5.22. I went back to sleep. Then I got up, got my walking clothes on, and started out into the Dallas morning. Wow, it was dark. It was really dark. I didn't realize just how dark our street was at 6 o'clock in the morning. My friend and I live on the same street, she said, but several blocks apart, so we'd agreed we would both step out of the door of our houses and start toward each other at 6 a.m. I'd walked a little way when I saw a shadowy figure up there in the dark, and I thought, ah, my friend. No, it was a fellow in his pajamas and bathrobe out collecting his morning paper. I walked a little farther. I could see a shadowy figure up there. I got a little closer. No, it wasn't my friend. It was a woman out walking her dog. But the next figure I saw was indeed my friend. As I'd walked toward her, I was thinking about Advent. That all the times I'm aware of that I've set out to walk toward God, I've discovered he was already walking toward me. I preach because I believe, she says, that every time a person tries to walk toward God, that person will discover God was already walking toward you. And my friend and I met, and we walked together into the rising sun. Number two. Second important thing I underlined here is Luke's insistence that baptism comes with metanoia. This is often translated as repentance. I don't think that word helps you as much as it might. I've told you that the Hebrew word translated in the Hebrew scriptures for repentance is not about being sorry. It's about being turned. Are you willing to be turned and returned to the one who created you? The Greek word is not that word, but it would probably probably help to know that it can be translated conversion. The old preachers used to talk a lot about conversion. Metanoia means change. Literally in the Greek, change of heart or mind. A change of heart or mind. If you know anything about automobiles, you know that before an automobile rolls forward or backward, conversions have to take place. This automobile is powered by pistons moving inside cylinders. That movement is back and forth, back and forth. That will not move the vehicle. It has to be converted into a motion that goes round and round. But usually that motion is first running lengthwise through the car. You don't want to go straight right or straight left. You want to go forward or backward. So it has to be converted again from motion in one direction to motion in another direction. Okay converted, changed. This is a scripture about the need for people to be turned, to return, to have change of heart or mind. 
This time of year, there are all kinds of special programs. On television, two nights, beginning of last week, there was a program called Neverland. Immediately, one thinks of Peter Pan, and that's what it was about. It was one writer's idea about how Peter Pan came to be Peter Pan. Where did Tinkerbell come from and this horrible old Captain Hook? Remember Wizard of Oz when Dorothy finally wakes from having been conked on the head during a tornado and discovers that this whole Wizard of Oz trip has been going on in her own mind? And that these three fellows that joined in on the yellow brick road, you remember a lion who had no courage, a, a scarecrow, a tin man. When she wakes up, the faces she had on those three characters were three people who worked at the farm where she lived. Remember? Well, the Neverland movie was sort of like that. You discover that 1806 in London, Peter was a little boy an orphaned little boy out on the streets, no one caring for him, when a fellow named Jimmy Hook takes him in. But Jimmy Hook is not a nice person. He collects these little boys so they can pick pockets for him. It was a long and convoluted story, but the point of it was that Peter Pan became who he was and dreamed of a Neverland where people never had to grow up never ever had to grow up because in fact he had been stripped of his innocence far too early you ever think about what that means stripped of one's innocence had to leave the age of innocence it means a child too young is suddenly introduced into an adult world an adult world of greed envy hatred bigotry prejudice lust and so a child may dream of a neverland but the reviewer of that television program said that all of us know that once you've left you can't really go back the question is can you deal with things the way they are you can if you're willing to be changed if you're willing to be well, these people seemingly were willing. First, Luke says, the laos, the people, said, what should we do to bear fruits of repentance, of change? And he gave them very simple, practical advice. Do you have two coats? Give one to someone who has no coat. Do you have really more food than you need? Give to someone who doesn't have enough food. Notice Luke says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. They were some of the most hated people of that day. These tax collectors were fellow Jews who actually bid for the privilege of collecting taxes. They paid a certain fee to the Romans, and then they made money by collecting more than the fee they had paid for the privilege. And some were so powerful, they were called chief tax collectors. They had a number of tax collectors working for them. One of them was a fellow named Zacchaeus. And when Jesus went home to eat lunch with Zacchaeus one day, Zacchaeus was shub. He was turned. And he said, if I've defrauded anyone, I will restore to him four times what I took. 
even soldiers came to be baptized. These would not be Roman soldiers. These would be Jewish soldiers, 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 soldiers of Herod Antipas, a descendant of Herod the Great. And these Jewish soldiers asked, what about us? And he said, well, obviously you have the weapons. You are the law enforcers. You can make life really difficult for others. I tell you, do not extort from them because you have the strength. Be content with your wages. Very practical advice on how one bears the fruit of repentance. Number four. Dr. Fred Craddock weighs in in his commentary on this fourth point. He said, lots of preachers love this fourth point about Jesus, the one who's coming, will stand there with a winnowing fork in his hand. And he said, we love this passage because now you can beat up people with whatever is on your mind. But he said, I want you to think about something here. The winnowing was to separate wheat from chaff. Now, do you know a farmer who really goes out in the spring and says, I think I'm going to grow myself a great big field of chaff this year? The purpose is the wheat. Jesus came to save the wheat. And John also came to save the wheat. And the people got that message because Luke says... And with these and many ex other exhortations, John declared to them the good news. Good news. God sees in you wheat. God wants to separate from your life any impurity so that you can be everything God created you to be. Gail and I watched two so-called reality shows on television. One of them is The Amazing Race. We like The Amazing Race. One of the reasons being that you don't get voted off. You know, you, you succeed if you succeed. You fail if you fail. And one of the interesting things to us is that every season, those chosen to race go around the world. And we've had the privilege of going to a lot of places ourselves. And it's fun to see them go somewhere we've been. This most recent race a few weeks ago sent the contestants to Copenhagen, in Denmark. There they were supposed to find the statue of Hans Christian Andersen. And on the base of that statue there is an inscription. They were to memorize it and go several blocks down the street to a small theater, dress appropriately to be in a theater, step up on stage, and dramatically give what they've memorized from the base of that statue. Gail and I have been to Copenhagen three times. We've been to the statue of Hans Christian Andersen. But do you know much about him? He was born in 1805. It was a hard time in Copenhagen. His family were very poor. His father was a shoe cobbler, repaired the shoes of wealthy people, and was paid a pittance in return. His mother worked as a maid in the homes of some of the wealthy, if she could get a job at all. And young Hans had to get along the best way he could. One time, he heard about the famed opera singer Jenny Lynn coming to Copenhagen. He sneaked around where he could hear her sing and immediately fell in love with her. 
biographers say he didn't have a chance with her, of course. He was too tall, too thin, ears too big, nose too big, chin too, too little. Jenny Lynn went her way. But he wrote a story called The Nightingale. If you've read Hans Christian Andersen, you know that he puts into his stories these unfulfilled dreams of his own. He wrote a story about a little mermaid, her great dream. She just wanted to be totally human. He wrote a story about Thumbelina, who just wanted to be as big as everybody else. He wrote a story about a little tin soldier who wanted to be faithful even though he had only one leg. He also wrote one called The Match Girl. Remember that one? It's about Christmas time in Copenhagen in the early 1800s. Snow is knee-deep, still falling. There's a little girl out on the streets trying to sell matches. No one's buying. The days are so short, mostly dark, little light. She has sold no matches. She's afraid to go home because her father beats her when she does not sell. He doesn't think she's been trying. So she huddles against a wall on one of the streets in Copenhagen where wealthy people live just inside. She strikes one of her matches and for just a moment there's a little bit of warmth a glow, and in her heart she sees into the house a roaring fireplace, warmth for everyone, and her match goes out. She strikes another match, and for just a moment in its glow, in a little tiny bit of warmth, she sees the table inside that mansion. There's a roasted goose and plum pudding, and her match goes out. She strikes a third, and this time, just for a moment, in its glow, in its warmth, she sees inside a Christmas tree. Tall, beautiful presents for everyone, and her match goes out. She strikes a fourth, and this time she sees coming toward her, her grandmother, who died a few years before the kindest person she had ever known, the most tender-hearted, the most genuine, the most compassionate. Oh, grandmother, she said, and her match starts to flicker. Oh, grandmother, grandmother, my match is going to go out. I want to go with you. I want to be where no one is sick, no one is cold, no one is hurt. There's no more pain, no more snow. And the match went out. The next morning, early passers-by found the body of this child frozen by the wall. Hans Christian Andersen said, strike a match, light a candle, get a glimpse into heaven.